Praise God. Praise God. So, you guys got a fancy paper this morning. Bless God. So, um, sometimes, uh, oh yeah, Children's Church. I apologize. I'm still new at remembering to dismiss Children's Church. So, if you'd like to go Children's Church. Yeah. I don't know if there's an age limit yet, but we might have to look into that now, Marty. <laughs> Oh, goodness, goodness. So, powerful, powerful exhortation and time of worship. Thank you, Faith. Thank you, Adam, for doing the sound. I appreciate that a lot. Um, so, this paper, a little bit of a confession on my part. Um, I had been feeling it in my heart that I needed to put some kind of supplement or some kind of aid to what I've been teaching on maturing in Christ, and I was slow about doing it, and I had an individual... Uh, Lee's daughter asked me about a reading plan. Where should she start? Because she had no idea. And so I made one for her, just wrote down some notes. And then um, on Wednesday night, uh, Flo asked me again, what is the most effective way to read so that I can grow? And then if that wasn't enough, Adam told me later that uh, he would like something like that. And he meant to ask me about that. So finally, you know, after several attempts, the Holy Spirit actually got through to me and I came up with the paper that you have in front of you. And I just want to go over it real quick because I don't want there to be any misunderstandings. So there's two columns. The left side is what to read and the right side is what to temporarily avoid reading. And I put temporarily in quotation marks. And the reason that I did that, and I want you to hear me very carefully, is this is just a general layout. This is by no means gospel. This is by no means law. This is just a general layout. If the Holy Spirit or you feel like God is leading you to read a particular book, then you don't have to follow this. You definitely need to follow what you're feeling God leading you in. However, if you are at a place and you are stumped and you're like, I want to read, but I don't know where to read, you know, Flo said she read from front to back, back to front, and then started in the middle and read to the end, and then started in the middle, read backwards to the beginning, um, which is really impressive because I don't know how you read from the back to the front, but she did it. Um, so if you're in a position like that and you just don't know what to read, then I think that this might be helpful. So to begin with, I put the Gospel of John, and in quotations I put read with intent. And no matter if you've been saved five minutes or 50 years, if you ask me what to read, I'm always going to point you to the Gospel of John first. And the reason is, is because the Gospel of John is written by John, who is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It shows a different depiction of Jesus than the other Gospels. It shows Jesus' mannerisms towards us. It's probably the simplest and the most profound book in the entire Bible. It probably has the most shallow and the deepest truths in the entire Bible. It is a very powerful book. So our reason I put read with intent is because you want to read that and keep these things in mind. Learn who Jesus is. Look at the person of Jesus. Look at how he responds to others. Look at how he treats sinners. Look at how he acts in different situations, circumstances. When he's persecuted, look at how he responds. When he's questioned, look at his mannerisms. Look at what he teaches and look at how he prays. And then once you've done that, you can move on to the other Gospels and compare the depiction of Jesus because each one of them show a very specific image of Jesus. Matthew shows the, the Pharisee Jesus is not a Pharisee. Matthew shows the religious leader that comes to fulfill the law and fulfill all of Jewish tradition. So they paint him from a very historical, very Jewish perspective. Mark shows a down-to-earth, hard worker who can sometimes be abrasive. And Luke shows a very detailed physician. That's why Luke shows more detail about his miracles, more detail about his teachings, more about how Jesus treats and deals with women. 
So in those Gospels, you see a different aspect of Jesus. So compare those to what you learned about Jesus in the Gospel of John and realize that all four of those work together to paint a very complete picture of Jesus. And then once you do that, you can move to the epistles, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, the letters of John, the letters of Peter, and you can focus on the depravity of man and the awesome holiness of God. You can focus on the benefits and the blessings in Christ, focus on how God deals with us, the promises that are contained in Christ. And then the whole time you're doing all this, Faith likes to tell everybody there's 31 Proverbs. There's no month that has more than 31 days. You can read a proverb a day and grow in wisdom. Psalms, we can learn how to worship. So the whole time you're doing all of this, you can read a psalm and a proverb to go along with it. So what I recommend doing, and we're probably going to start creating a church bulletin, something small uh, each week. And once we start doing that, I'll have a you know a weekly reading plan. Maybe each day you read a gospel, a letter out of the Gospel of John, one chapter, and then you read one proverb and one psalm and move forward. Um, and the church can be reading the same thing at the same time. Um, read these slowly. There's no need to hurry. This isn't a rush to completion, but rather a lifetime of growth. This, what is on the left side, is the milk of the Word of God. What we've been talking about, we've been talking about the growth from a baby, uh, unformed substance to a baby, to a child, to a young adult, to a father in ministry. This is the milk of the Word that First Peter talks about. This is how you grow. On the right side, what to temporarily avoid reading, I put different books, different things, and the reason that I would recommend postponing them until you're more mature in Christ. There's nothing wrong with any of these books. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for discipline, for reproof, for edification, for growth. All Scripture is good. But the reason that I say this and avoid these books is because these books have been so twisted, a lot of them, and people have gotten such false ideas of God because the Old Testament is Christ concealed. Or the, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed and the, what the Old Testament had hidden, the New Testament reveals. So until you understand the New Testament, you can't really properly understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament in its face value as it was given was given in the Old Covenant to the Jewish audience. And so the things that are described, while they are true and while they are aspects of God and nothing in there is wrong, it paints a picture of God that may not be correct to our understanding if we're not very careful about how we look at it. That's why Paul urges Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth. We need to understand who God is. We need to understand how God deals with us in the new covenant as opposed to how he dealt in the old covenant. Because we're not under the law because Christ fulfilled the law. So the reason I have most of those, most of those with the exception of Revelation are Old Testament books. And you can read the bottom, which is a disclaimer. It's basically just saying, a baby needs milk to grow. If you give a baby a piece of steak, it's going to choke the baby. These books on the right-hand side are steak. And if you are not mature enough in your faith to understand it, there's nothing wrong with that. But digest and process what you are mature enough in the faith to understand. So that's the list. Um, if you need more or if anybody else wants an extra one, you can have those. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them after service. So, like I said, I just wanted to put the rubber to the road and not just say, hey, walk in the Spirit, and not tell you how to walk in the Spirit. Hey, desire the milk of the Word and not tell you what the milk of the Word is. So this is just putting our preaching to practice, okay? So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Um, you guys are probably starting to get the gist. Every time I get up here, I like to review what we've been doing. Um, sometimes I do a little bit more extensive of a review. 
Um, I'm not going to be super extensive this time because last time I preached an hour and Faith beat me up and got mad at me. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. She didn't. But um, I do realize and I'm very mindful that the Children's Church doesn't have AC and it is Mississippi, so I don't want to take longer than necessary. I just want to take the appropriate amount of time and get the information across. So our review... We are in our series right now, Maturing as Believers or Christian Maturity. We're going to be on part three today. There are five steps of Christian maturity. You guys remember what they are? Unformed substance, newborn, child, young adult, father, or parent in ministry. Um, we get that from Second, uh, 1 John chapter 2, where it has the list of the different levels of maturity. Um, for the unformed substance in week one, we get that from Psalm 139, verse 14 and 16. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So the first step in Christian maturity is an unformed substance. This is a person who is not yet a Christian. This is the person, and I developed a great theological term, super proud of it. This is what I am calling unregenerate sanctification. This is when a person starts to get God curious and they're beginning to separate from the world. Their eyes are being opened. They realize that there's more to life than just what our eyes can see. They're realizing that the natural is not all there is. There has to be a God, whether that's from any manner of apologetic arguments or whether that's just from the Spirit moving on the inside of them. Uh, we went over prevenient grace, how God supplies a grace that helps us get over our own depravity so that we have the ability to have faith. Reforms call it regeneration that precedes salvation. All I'm saying is, is that there's something that happens to an individual before they come to salvation, whether it takes five minutes or 50 years where they go through every manner of train of thought, maybe even get into to heresy, maybe even get into false, false beliefs, but eventually they come around and they come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because God, who begins a good work in us, will not let it go until it's completed. So this unformed substance is that process where we are starting to become aware of Christianity and the truth that is in Christ, but we're not there yet. Um, each one of these stages, we're looking at three things. We're looking at what's expected of us at this stage in Christian maturity, how God deals with us, i.e. how He disciplines us and how He rewards or blesses us. And the third thing is how do we relate to God in that particular stage. For an unformed substance, someone that is not yet in Christ, we can look at this even in a natural perspective. If a woman is pregnant and she has a baby, she has one expectancy of that baby, that it reaches full formation and that it is born. That is the only natural expectancy. We might watch their levels. We might watch their growth rate. We might look at the hormone levels of the mother. But everything that we're looking at feeds into that one thing that this baby is formed and that it is born, that it is birthed. So as an unformed substance, as someone who is beginning to be God-curious, who is beginning to be separated from the world and realizing that there's truth in Christ, the one thing that we're looking for is for them to come to the full formation and knowledge of God and to be born again, to be saved, to be born of the Spirit. How God deals with an unformed substance, it rains on the just and unjust. God isn't disciplining someone according to a covenant that they're not in. It, they get blessing just like the people in the world do. They get reward. They get the rain, the bad things, the circumstances. You know, life happens. But God is not specifically rewarding or disciplining them according to a covenant that they're not yet a part of. And how they relate to God, they just relate to God by coming to that full knowledge and being formed and being born. 
The next stage in Christian maturity, we take this one from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So a newborn infant, someone that is just born, they have one expectancy, one major expectancy, and that is that they take the milk, they eat, and that they grow. And the milk of the Word, that list that we just gave you, that you process that Word, that pure milk of the Word, and that you allow it to mature you as a believer. And there are various ways that that happens. Eventually, as you begin to process that Word, the Spirit comes alongside of you like we covered last week, and you begin to understand what it is to think in the Spirit, that your mind is aligned with heavenly things and not on earthly things, that you begin to follow after the Spirit as He leads and guides you into Christ. And so with the Word, the truth and with the spirit we begin to grow and we can progress into the stage of a child a child we're going to look at first john 3 1 see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of god and so we are and the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him as a child of god a child is a little bit more than a baby because a child is now responsible for their actions asher my son, he knows whether or not he's doing good or whether he's doing bad. Sometimes he intentionally does bad just to get a reaction. Sometimes he intentionally does good just to get love or a hug or a pat on the back or just say, good job, buddy. But he is now getting to the point where he is responsible for his actions to a degree, not as much as a full-grown adult. I mean, if he takes something off the t shelf at Walmart and tries to walk out of the store with it, he's not intentionally stealing. He's just like, hey, it's a toy. I want to take a toy with me. So he does it in innocence. But he's still responsible for his conduct, whether it be good or bad. So a child is expected, number one, to be responsible for their actions, to begin to understand what proper Christian conduct is. Number two, a child is expected to live off of more than just milk. As we progress in the faith, we need to get beyond just the base things of the Word and to begin to understand the process and the plan of atonement, the plan of redemption. We need to move on to more solid food with supervision. You still wouldn't give a three-year-old a sirloin and say, here you go, buddy, here's a knife and a fork, have at it. We cut it up, we give it to them and process it. That's why children are still under tutors and teachers and governors and masters until they can come into the full maturity of the faith. Now. God disciplines us with mercy as children. There is discipline, but sometimes there's grace. We don't spank Asher every time he messes up, otherwise we beating him all the time. This morning he was a little bit extra, as we like to call it, um, you know, running around screaming like a chicken with his head cut off. But we season it with grace. We discipline when the discipline is necessary, and we try to show grace when possible. Same way with God. He disciplines children according to their understanding and their maturity, but He shows a lot of mercy and a lot of grace. He's very long-suffering. And how we relate to God, we respect and reverence Him as our Father. As we read last week, we cry out, the Spirit, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, wherewith we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Father, Father. We reverence Him and we respect Him when we know the intimate relationship that we have with Him. Good? Alright, so that was review. So, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to get into this meat here. We're going to start in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child or since he is a babe. 
but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there's a lot being said here about this, about everything that Paul just said in the first four and a half chapters of Hebrews about Christ coming and fulfilling the Old Testament, about Christ being a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I won't get into that because that really is me. But all of the things that Christ did, all of the things that are about Christ as an individual, the higher and the deeper things of theology, the deeper things of the fulfillment of the law, and everything that was said, about all of that, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Because the people he's trying to explain it to are not at that level of maturity yet. They're still babies in Christ. Even though they may have been saved for a long time, which is why he says, you should be matured beyond this point. First of all, I want to say this. I am not rebuking anyone. I'm not assuming that anyone is at any certain level of maturity. I'm not doing that. This can be used as a rebuke, and I've seen people cut others' heads off with this passage. I'm not doing that because I don't assume anyone's at any certain maturity level. And it doesn't matter what maturity level we are because there's no wrong place to start, but there is a wrong place to finish. And we need to start, figure out where we're at in our Christian maturity and progress and grow in Christ to the greatest lengths and greatest extent that He will allow us and encourage us to go. So, all of this is hard to explain because you should be at the level and the maturity where you should be teachers. You should be at the level where you are young, adults in the faith, mature in the faith, and you should be able to reciprocate this and teach this to others, but you're not. You're still dull of hearing. You still need milk and not solid food. And as we discussed, the ones that need milk are the babes in Christ and the children in Christ. They need some milk with smaller amounts of solid food, not the full-blown steak of the Word. Now, when he says solid food, there's two implications of that. There's an obvious implication that solid food is talking about the deeper things of God, the greater revelations in the Word, and that's proved by the first part of Hebrews 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of instruction about washings or baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those six things, that's the base level understanding of God, the base level ordinances of God. He says that's all elementary doctrine of Christ. Leaving that, not leaving the practice of it, but moving past that understanding to the greater things of God. So what he's talking about with the solid food in the one respect is he's talking about the deeper things of God. Leaving these elementary doctrines and let's going into the deeper things like the power of the Trinity and the harmony of the plan of atonement. The things as far as you know, God's role in our redemptive covenant and the, the different aspects of that, those are greater things that he's urging them to move on to that they should be at the point where they can not only know and understand this but teach this. But he's saying they're not there yet. So the first aspect of the solid food is the obvious aspect of the deeper revelations of God. The second aspect is a little bit harder to explain, and it's a little bit less obvious. The second aspect of what solid food is, is actually works. And this may come as a shock, like, wait a second, we're not under a covenant of works. We're not justified by works, but works are still required. And we preached this in our series on John 3.16 when we preached about love. We preached that you can have works and not have love, but you can't have love without having works. Just as James exhorts and says, you can have 
works and not have faith. But you cannot have faith and not have works because faith without works is dead. It's useless. Just as the body without breath or the body without spirit is dead and it's useless, it's good for nothing, faith without works is dead. So what Paul, and when he's saying solid food, one aspect of that is works. And let me prove it to you. Verse 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, powers of discernment, which is a spiritual, trained by what? By constant practice to distinguish good for evil. By constant putting their faith to work. By constant practice, you don't just become a Christian and automatically have the highest level of discernment. Discernment, for a lot of people, operates kind of like this. You get a feeling, and that feeling resonates inside of you, and you may not know what that feeling is, but then you find out, and then later when you have that feeling again, you realize what that feeling is implicative of. That's not always how it works, but that's a very base, base description of it. So what he's saying is they have constantly constantly been working their salvation out with fear and trembling they've constantly been putting it to practice putting what they know what they understand and their faith to practice so you can't just walk out on the street and automatically be the world's greatest street evangelist it's tough to evangelize on the street even with a method even with you know sharing jesus without fear even with explosion the the explosion evangelism or evangelism explosion i said that back backwards even with those apologetic plans or those methods of evangelism it is still very hard to get over that snare of fear of man it's very hard to go out and to begin to evangelize it takes practice because you're going to fumble you're going to stumble that's just part of the growth like right now we're going through my least favorite part of parenting potty training and in potty training it's practice 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 and a lot of messes a lot of aggravation and headaches and frustration. A lot of putting Asher on the potty, waiting for him to go, sitting there for five, ten minutes. Okay, you're not ready to go. Putting his clothes and putting a diaper or a pull-up back on him. And then 30 seconds later, he fills his britches. It's a lot of patience and a lot of practice. And the reason that I'm using that very silly description is because Christianity and putting our faith to practice is like that in one sense. You're going to make a mess. And it's okay. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to miss the mark because ultimately we're not there yet. We're getting there. We're getting better than where we were when we started, but we're not there yet. So putting our faith into practice is simple. Reading a passage and saying, like even the First Peter passage, put away all malice or all anger, all envy, all jealousy, putting that away. Okay, you read that. Now what are you going to do? When anger comes up, you're going to try your best to put it away from you. When jealousy comes up or envy comes up or you're jealous because somebody got a better outfit than you or you were at the store and you were looking for that particular dress and they didn't have your size and then you come to church on Sunday and you see someone that you really like or maybe someone that you don't like, not talking about this body because we all like each other here, but <laughs> there happened to be in that dress that didn't have your size in it. Just silly things like that and you have that envy or when I beat Marty at fantasy football and he's <laughs> envious of me at that point in time, putting that away, putting that jealousy and putting that envy away. Why? Because you just read it in Scripture. That's a simple putting your faith to practice. That's a simple working your salvation out with fear and trembling. 
a lot of people have taken that verse from Philippians that I've been saying, and work your own salvation out with fear and trembling, and they have twisted that saying, see, you really just make this up as you go and make your salvation specific to what you want. And here's the interesting thing. If we go through this and we take out what we like and we throw away what we don't like, and that's what we follow, just the parts that we like, we're not worshiping or following God. We're worshiping and following ourselves. If we pick and choose who our God is and what we like about our God, then we're picking and choosing and making ourselves our God. And that's idolatry. We have to, regardless of whether it makes sense in our mind, regardless of whether we can understand it, regardless of whether we even like it, because there's many things I have to do in this Word that I can't stand. Oh, I've got to bite my tongue. They persecute me, but I have to bless them. They despitefully use me, but I have to pray for them. That's unpleasant to do, but afterwards it feels amazing. They are robbing you, stealing from you, talking bad about you, and you're supposed to bless them and feed them and pray for them and heap lumps of fire on their head. And I first read that in Romans, leap comes up coals of fire upon their head, and I was like, yes, God's got them. That actually means, and it's a sign in Jewish culture of repentance, sackcloth and ashes repenting, mourning. What you're doing by praying for them is pushing them towards repentance. Your actions, the fact that you don't respond as the world responds, shows your Christian maturity and it, in fact, pushes them further towards Christ, which is ultimately our goal, is to glorify God in every moment, every breath, every word, every action, every minute of our lives to glorify God. It's putting our faith into practice working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because we should fear and tremble before our God. Because yes, He's a loving God. Yes, He's a good, good Father. Yes, He desires us and He's affectionately intimate towards us. But He's also the sovereign Lord of the universe. He also spoke every ounce of creation into existence. He's also holy, holy, holy. The only aspect of God that is spoken in the thrice connotation or spoken three times is holy. Why? Holy Father, Holy Spirit, Holy Son. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy, I don't even think, and people have fought about this for years, I don't even think we can understand what holy actually means. Some say it just means pure, and it just means fulfilling the law, and it just means all your actions are good. Great, what's righteous mean? If it means the same thing, then we have a problem because holy and righteous are not the same term. So what does holy mean? Well, it just means separate. It means other than. Great. Other than what? Other than everything that we see? Okay, so if it means other than everything that we see, then what is it actually implying? It is implying that God is so different. Paul Washer uses this, and it's a little bit crude of an illustration, but I think it works. He says that our difference between God, even though it says, I know it says, so don't jump down my throats, we were made in His image. We can get into that at another time. Even though it says that, the difference between us and God is not a qualitative difference. It's not that God is us just bigger or us just more or us just better. It's a quantitative difference, meaning that God is so much different from us. We were made in His image and then the fall and then the gradual generational degradation of humanity going further and further down the depths and the road of depravity. But we're still so different from God. Paul says that, Paul Washer says this, and I say Paul Washer because it's not Paul the Apostle. Paul Washer says that the speck of bacteria that you find 
on a toilet seat is no closer to God or no further away from God than the seraphim that surrounds his throne. Both are created beings and both are no closer to God than the other. They're both just a created being. They're both so far and so separate and so removed from God that even the seraphim cover their eyes and cover their feet because they are awestruck in the presence and the closeness that they are to God. So, the implication, the second implication of solid food is works. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Working out what we know about God. Working out what the Word teaches us, what the Word says to us. Working that out. If you want to turn to John chapter 4. The Gospel of John. In case anyone starts turning towards the epistle. I said I was going to prove to you that solid food was works. So here's my catch-all proof. Chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And the reason I finished that out is because I wanted to show the distinguish. One sows, one reaps. One plants, one waters. Paul says, Apollos has planted, I've watered. I think he actually says, I've planted, Apollos has watered, but God provides the increase. The reason I said that is because I want you to understand that in Christian maturity, I'm not pushing every single one of you to grow in Christ and again, come to the point to where you can walk up here and take this microphone and preach every Sunday because not every single person is called to that form of ministry. Growing and maturing in Christ is not meaning that you have to understand every tittle and every iota of theology. It's not meaning that you have to know the difference between provenient grace and common grace. It's, that's not what it means. What growing in Christian maturity means that you work and you study and you follow after God as much as your giftings will allow in certain areas and that you figure out what God has specifically called and ordained and set you to do and you mature in that until you come to the point to where you can do that as an adult. We don't tell Asher or Claire to go out and to get a job, even a job at McDonald's. Not that there's anything wrong with working at McDonald's. I commend anyone that holds down a full-time job, no matter what that job is. What I'm saying is they're not mature enough to do that. They grow, they learn, and as they get older, then they will get a job. Now, everyone that works at McDonald's while they're going through high school or even while they're in college paying their way are not destined to work at McDonald's, but they take that as a job to work towards where they were at. When we were coming up, before I became a pastor, I worked in the nursery, 
I did children's church. I helped with a youth group. I did a discipleship ministry. We were itinerant preachers. We were evangelists. Faith was a worship leader. We went in and stepped in as assistant pastors. And we did all of these things working to the point in time where we could get here to a more full description of what we're actually called to do. It's a progression. Everyone that comes out of high school that gets a job at McDonald's to pay their way is really... Not everyone, but a lot of them are really just using that as a layover job until they can find a job. They're using it as a source of income to sustain them until they can get further. They're getting work experience because a lot of companies won't hire you until you have work experience. And the reason I'm using that as a natural parallel is because working out your salvation requires constant practice. You have to start doing the things and let God bless you with small beginnings so that He can trust you with large opportunities and large responsibilities. God's not just going to let you get saved, say, I think I'm called to preach and hand you a mega church. If that happens, praise God because there are exceptions. Charles Spurgeon had a mega church when he was 19. I didn't. I wasn't even saved until I was 20. I still don't have a mega church, and that's okay. At least mega numerically. I think you guys are pretty mega. What I'm saying is, is we grow, we practice, we learn, we mature. This is not just a strict guideline, okay, I'm an unformed substance, I got saved, now I'm a babe, I read the Bible for a year, now I'm a child, I read the Bible and pray, let the Spirit lead me for two years, now I'm a young adult, I start teaching and mentoring and ministering, okay, now I'm a father and I have my own ministry. It's not a solid set in stone plan, this is just showing you the categories and describing to you what Christian maturity looks like. Walking in the Spirit, letting the Spirit change your thoughts, letting the Spirit change your desires. Faith and Melanie are on the health kick and they're cutting out sugars and they keep telling me my taste buds are going to change and I'm going to start liking things that don't have sugar in it. And I don't know if I believe them or not because things without sugar taste like dirt. But <laughs> it really does. But I'm trying in the sense... It's the way with the Spirit because you're so programmed to the world that when you get saved, you have to let the Spirit mature you and your desires slowly start to change. Whereas you used to desire to lust after women, your desire can slowly start to shift by how much of the Spirit and how much of the Word you're pouring into you. And now every time you see a woman, regardless of whether she's Miss Miniskirt or whether she's sister dressed to her toes, it doesn't matter. You look at her as a sister in Christ or as someone in the world who you have the opportunity to minister to. Whether or not it's girl that I got in a fight with in high school and she gave me a black eye and talked about me to... I'm, I'm using the perspective of being a female here if that wasn't clear. <laughs> Whether or not you're a female and you see a girl at Walmart that beats you up when you were in high school and then she stole your boyfriend and trash talked you and made you have look like you had egg on your face, you don't see her as that rival or that enemy anymore because of the spirit and the maturity as a Christian. You now begin to see her as someone you love and as someone who God diligently desires and someone you have the opportunity to build a relationship with and see one for the kingdom of God. Regardless of whether or not your desires used to be to click onto a pornogra pornographic website, 
The Spirit of God can change that. Regardless of whether or not your desires used to be to fight and to drink and to brawl and to do drugs, the Spirit of God can change that. As we grow and mature in Christ, our desires and our mindset begin to mature. But it requires a few things. As a baby, it requires nothing more than just submitting ourselves, letting the Spirit of God nurture us with the milk of the Word. That's all that we expect of a baby. We expect them to cry, to eat, to sleep, and to poop. And they can poop. We expect that. We expect to change some messy diapers. We expect that of a baby in Christ. The problem is in the church, and I've said this countless times, and I'll say it again even once this series is finished, we continually expect someone to walk in, get saved on a Sunday, and by Wednesday we expect them to walk, talk, and act like an elder in the church. And the problem is is we're trying to clean fish before we catch them. The problem is is we're trying to gut and treat and skin a deer before we ever shoot it. The problem is is that we're expecting a baby to act like an old man or an old woman. It's not going to happen. We need to get back to that natural expectancy of someone that's a baby in Christ is going to act like a baby in Christ. They're going to cry and complain and whine. They're going to eat. They're going to sleep. And that can be translated as they're going to be lazy sometimes because they've still got some of that worldliness and they haven't put their hands to the work of God yet. And they're going to make messes. And as a child, we expect them to eat, still have milk, eat some more solid foods to grow, to begin to become responsible for their actions. And we still deal with them in that aspect of understanding that they're a child. But once you become an adult, Paul says it this way. He says, when I was a child, I spake like a child, I acted like a child, I behaved like a child, but when I became a man, I put away all childish things. He says that, and the same is true with us. Once we become an adult, unless you're a weirdo, because they have that show where people have those weird cravings or desires and they dress up like babies and they're an adult or they dress up like unicorns and stuff. Unless you're one of those people, When you become an adult, you no longer put on a diaper and a bonnet and drink out of a two-gallon bottle. You don't do that. You get up, you go to work, even if it sucks, you provide for your family, and you live your life in a responsible manner. And the same is true in Christ. When you're a baby, we expect people to make mistakes, but we don't expect to go out to dinner and to sit with another fellow adult having lunch or dinner or whatever and then to mess their drawers. We just don't expect that. Because they're an adult. And the same thing is true with a Christian. We expect someone that's mature in Christ to be able to behave themselves as a mature Christian. We expect them to put away the sinful things of the flesh. We don't expect an adult Christian to be carnal in all their ways. We expect them to have the godly desires. We expect them to have the godly thoughts. And that's not counting temptation because we're all tempted. But we expect them to behave themselves as a godly adult and mature in Christ. And then once they get to that point, Just like we're expected once we're out of high school and if we go to college and once we're out of college, we're expected to get a job and get out of our parents' house. And the same thing is true in Christianity. Not getting out of God's house, obviously, but once we become an adult, we're expected to get up and put our hands to the work, figure out what we're called to do and start doing it. And that doesn't mean preaching only. That means if you're a dedicated and capable worker, that means mowing the yard. That means doing the sound. That means cleaning the church. That means teaching children's church. That means running the nursery. That means sewing diligently if you're 
financial savvy. That means doing whatever God's gifted you to do and giving that back to Him. The first fruits, not the aftermath. If you're a millionaire, you shouldn't. your tithes shouldn't look the same as somebody who's struggling week to week. And I'm not using that as a punchline to get a bunch more money. I'm saying that if God has blessed you in that regard, then you need to freely give as you freely received. So that's the second implication of Hebrews 5 as becoming an adult in Christ. Number one, moving on to the deeper things beyond the simple milk of the Word. And number two, getting up and getting motivated and getting to work. Now, I want to close, and I'm going to close with this wonderful scripture from Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 12-17. You don't have to turn there. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted probably the most underrated verse in the entire Bible. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, as for who, as for those who are in Christ, continue, proceed, go deeper, move forward in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or Scripture, or the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So it all goes back to the Word. It all goes back to this, having the Word in your heart and having the Spirit in your heart. Moving in the Spirit and conforming to the Word. God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son, Christ Jesus. We are growing in the faith. We're maturing in the faith. And we're going to do it together. Amen? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this glorious Word that You gave forth this morning. Lord, I hope that it was shaped in the Spirit as an arrow and it was able to penetrate the heart of everyone who heard. Lord, I pray that this Word is as a seed and it causes transformation in the lives, in the hearts, and in the minds of everyone who was here today. And even those who may later on listen to this online. Lord, I pray that this Word is able to cause and to be the causation of a wonderful work in their life. Lord, I simply ask that You would encourage and and enable everyone in here to be, find out first what they're called to do and give them the strength, the willpower, and the ability to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.